Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, our guest today is um, a very funny man. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, but... Um, it starts with being a Bostonian comedian, a Jew, and a sweetheart. <laughs> That's a, a manager put that at the top of my bio years ago, and it's still people are always like, "Oh, you think you're a sweetheart?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yes, yeah." I, I think you're a sweetheart. That's. I mean, I hope so. It's important. I think two of those things. I think being a Bostonian and a Jew might some might. Uh, well, being in Bostonian might make some people think you're not a sweetheart, but you, you know, you absolutely have to be. So, uh, but yeah, I'm a Bostonian and a Jew. I feel that being a Bostonian means you're a sweetheart. It just means that you will never show people that you're a sweetheart. Yeah, you're gruff. That's right. Yeah, I have I have a joke about that sometimes about how the how everything from Boston is progressive, but it sounds horrific, <laughs> right? Like absolutely. Like growing up, you'd hear people on the streets screaming, like, you know, queers have a right to get married like everybody else. And you're like, yeah, that's that's correct, but you don't have to be yelling it. So Bostonians are, are, are very nice. And I'm here right now. I'm here in Boston right now, which oh, is very nice. the best. But, it's uh, it's funny because they feel it's like Israelis or or or, or right, sort of like right. So like you uh like when I speak in Hebrew, especially sort of like, you know, people who don't really know me and they're like, what was that about? Like, right. Cause I speak to whatever I'll speak to my, my mother or at the time to a friend and they're, they're like, what was that about? Are you right? I'm like, yeah. She's like, wow, you sound like you're fine. He's like, no, it's every that's conversation. Scary. That's so funny. That's so, it's so Israeli, but, <laughs> but yeah, I am. Um, there's a lot in common Israelis and Bostonians, but yeah. And both of them are places I feel uh, a bit like home. So I lived in Israel for a while. I lived in Boston for a while. I lived in, uh, I live in LA currently, but, but yeah, both are places that feel wonderfully homey to me. Indeed. Well, anyway, welcome to the show, Alex Edelman. <laughs> um, I introduce myself. I don't know. I guess I'm a comedian. I am a comedian. You are a comedian. You're a very um, funny comedian, which sort of puts you above the rest of any other comedians I do. I'm a, I'm a funny comedian. I'm a television writer. Uh, I'm was raised modern Orthodox. Uh, I went to NYU. I'm a Pisces, and I've uh, I've I've written. Yeah, I already said TV writer. I've written a couple right. of television shows, and uh, yeah, I currently live in Los Angeles, but I've spent a lot of time in the UK. So. I think those are some good starting points for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, what you you're right and all that. So, so, so I guess part part of the 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 start, uh, you know, is um, I, I feel like when when you go into comedy, right, and probably right, there's a there's a conversation that happens with sort of Jewish parents or any parents, right, like you know. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm going to be a comedian, right? I think part of the, right, the Jewishness of it is like, oh, yeah, of course, right? Because that's, that's what we do. And but I was like, no, can you, right? Can you be, can you be a doctor? Can you be a lawyer? Can you have a real profession? Can you do something else before you too decide that you're a comedian? Did that happen with your parents? I think I skipped that step, honestly. I think my parents were like, okay, that if you, you know, they think, I think um, there was never ever a, a conversation, but, you know, my parents were always concerned uh, until, you know, I started getting healthcare through the Writers Guild of America. <laughs> and then once I got healthcare, they were like, oh, okay, it's going to be all right. You know, it's a, uh, it's a really big stress for parents, whether or not you have healthcare. But I think outside of that, my parents were just like, do something that you really enjoy. And this seems to be something that you really enjoy. And I've I had a lot of adventures early on. And so I think my parents were, you know, I've never really met any comedians who are Jewish, whose parents gave them, uh, you know, shit for being a comedian. Hmm. So I may, 
I never have before, but I may push back on this myth, on this as a myth eventually. Hmm. Okay. Because I think that my parents at least were wildly supportive, very right. supportive. Well, I guess that's partly my point. I think partly my point is right, sort of that um, there is a very old standing tradition of sort of Jewish comedians, right? And sort of we'll talk about the Catskills and all that, and you know, so so. Um, Perhaps not, right? Perhaps yeah. they're like, yeah, this is this is one of those things that we do. Yeah, I think that they were like, I think my brothers were like, what? He, you? You're going to be, you're not funny. But uh, <laughs> I think what made it work was once my parents realized that you could have a house and a, and a life. And by the way, there were some models for me, there was a comedy named Elon Gold, who's an Orthodox comedian mm-hmm. who makes a good living. My parents were like, Elon makes a good living. And there's a comedy named Modi in New York. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Modi makes a good living. You know, maybe you can make a living like Elon and Modi. And I actually, I haven't in, in that way. Right. But, you know, these guys are wonderful comedians and wonderful people. And so, uh, but yeah, they were good role models for me. And when I was starting out, those guys were there and around and important for me, especially mm. in sort of convincing my parents and family that there was a path for this where Orthodox right. guys, it's really not like, you know, there's Jewish and then there's like Orthodox or modern Orthodox. They're like, right. people are like, yeah, you know, this thing's very Jewish. And I was like, is it, I mean, yeah, it is Jewish to be a comedian, but is it modern Orthodox or Orthodox to be a comedian? Like how many Orthodox comedians are in the zeitgeist at any given time. There are not a ton of them. Well, I can't think of any. No. I mean, now I can, but like, but I can't think of any in general. No, but Definitely I, growing up, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, before Elon Gold and Modi, can we think of any Orthodox comedians who made a living, especially doing stuff, you know, that wasn't just talking about being Orthodox? There were very few. I hear about, you know, a couple every couple of years. You know, right. someone be like, oh, do you know so-and-so? He's a comedian or X, Y, Z. Right. But yeah, rarely hear about it, if ever. Right. So, I mean, that's a that was annoying, by the way. Growing up, there's very little representation for, for you know. There are lots of Jews, but very rarely my kind of Jews on stage or TV. So... Uh, it's nice because I, I mean, there are a couple. Like I said, Ooh, I Bialik. <laughs> look, I love Mayan Bialik for that right? reason. <laughs> like, like I had to write my brain to be like, oh, I do know. Okay, yeah, at least one. But yeah. Yeah, Mayan is a really good example. And she's, um, is she, and she's recently converted, right? Or not recently converted, but she's, be, she became more Dati. Yeah, she, I think she, she became more Orthodox as the years went by, right? But yeah, yeah. But kudos to her, honestly, yeah, because for sure. just there aren't many. So it, you know, and kudos to her in that sense, and I think that's part of our conversation, right? That sort of she not just sort of went on her own path, it seems, but she made it part of her public persona, right? To to talk about these things, to talk about her uh, religiosity, to to discuss her her Jewish observance in a way that that is. Um, very, uh, as you said, sort of very representational. Yeah. And, you know, for, as far as I can tell, Mayim lives a Torah life and is a, you know, just a cool person. And we've done a couple of things together, like events or stuff, or mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I've got a lot of respect for her and time for her. And, but yeah, it's, and now she's going to be the host of Jeopardy. So there's right. going to be an Orthodox host of jeopardy which is so cool to me so because we would watch that growing up and it was you know it's great but it's a very waspy bastion <laughs> like it's a very goyish thing i was about to say it's a goyish show but you know i don't you know don't know that you can term i don't love when people are like eh, you know oh no no we're, i'm saying this with 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 all the love and care for it not oh, not in yeah, any way derogatory of course so if people don't come at me but um but it doesn't scream jewish right. jeopardy right so like to have mayim who is you know this you know a woman who is a, who's fairly public about living a torah life 
being a, I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. But that it is cool. But but that is that, and I think especially the, is that a thing that is, if you ask me, right, so like about sort of right, so like Jews and Jeopardy, right. On one hand, it would be like, yes, it's about some like knowledge and wisdom. But I also feel that if um, that if I ever sort of decided to go on it or something, that's like my my parents or or at least sort of old school people in my family will be like, we don't call attention to ourselves. That's not what we do. Oh. Right? I mean, yeah. I never – honestly, that's one of the weird things about stand-up comedy, which is that I don't really want to be famous. I've never – I've always wanted to be successful and acclaimed, but I've never wanted to be famous. And so – part of comedy depends on becoming famous and it's right. weird because I've never wanted that. I've just wanted people to go, that guy's great. He does good work. And, uh, and so on the side effect of that is that I've become minorly, very minorly famous in certain small areas and circles, you know, I'll get stopped on like the upper West side or a coffee shop in LA or the ice cream circle of Los Angeles. You're really well known. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, I can't walk into the big chill without being stopped every night. That's right. But like <laughs> for, for people who were just today, this is a bit of an inside joke. So oh, sort of oh, Alex yeah. and I have had adventures of finding really good ice cream. No, oh, we love, we love an ice cream. <laughs> But it's, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not famous by any metric, but yeah, mm-hmm. not calling attention to yourself was considered, was something growing up. My parents were always like, it's, we ever, if we ever went abroad, my parents were like, you don't need to wear a yarmulke. Hmm. But you, you have know, to wear a hat. You can wear a hat. Don't wear yeah. a yarmulke. And I was like, I'm going to wear, you know, when I was in Istanbul, I wore a yarmulke. And I got pulled over by the military police because there was a military parade and I was recording it on my phone because I was, you know, right, enjoying how, it. how often do you see a military parade? Right. And the cops pulled me aside. They're like, probably a lot in Turkey. I don't know. What? <laughs> probably a lot in Turkey. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and these cops were like, who, right. who are you? What's your name? What's your hat? Right. That's what surprised me. I was like, you don't know what a yamak is? And they're like, no, what's the deal here? And they were like, what are you in town for? And I said, I'm in town to perform comedy. And they're like, <laughs> this sounds less and less probable by the minute. They're like, yeah, they were like, what? my friend Jared ran up and he's like, no, no, no. You know, the guy was meeting who right. speaks fluent Turkish ran up and was like, no, this guy's a comedian. He's in town to perform. And they're like, okay, but you know, the funny thing is, job is that <laughs> I wasn't worried. I was like, ah, eh, you know, they're not going to arrest me. And even if they do, what a great story. And also I'm was brought over here by the ministry of culture. So I, some, some clout, someone's going to lose their job if I, if I wind up dead. So <laughs> as long as, as long as someone loses their job, if I'm killed, that's uh that's, you know, that's all that's important to me. So here's here's an interesting right. I, I get this asked all the time, and 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 in that sense, I feel perhaps being a comedian is very similar to that. Like, right? I get asked all the time, "Well, when did you know you're going to be a rabbi, or when did you want to choose to be a rabbi?" Right? Um, and I feel like, in that sense, sort of, when did you decide that this is something that you that you want to do? When did you decide that sort of that right that you're going to talk and make other people feel something or laugh for a living? You know, I just, it's just a hobby that got out of hand. And then I started getting paid for it. And then I got paid <laughs> enough. That I still haven't decided if I'm going to be a comedian. You know, I can't. Ah. Yeah. But, um. You see it leaving? You, I mean, you, you could see yourself sort of leaving it like, eh, I'm not doing this anymore. Well, yeah, if it stops, if I stop enjoying it, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I can do other things. Uh, I can write for television or I can write novels one day or. Hopefully I, you know, I want to do all those things. Um, or maybe I'll be a whitewater rafting guide on the Colorado river. I've never, I like water rafting. I've never done it, but it's very fun. I did one rafting in Massachusetts and in Ethiopia. I mean, two very different places, but very different places. But I was, I was driving down the cold river in Massachusetts yesterday. And I was like, this whitewater rafting was pretty good. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. Um, 
I think I started like really loving this as a late teenager. And then when I went to Israel, I helped open up a comedy club there called Off the Wall Comedy Club. This guy, David Kalimnik, started in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And I Off the out. Wall? <laughs> yeah. The, get it? Get it? Yeah. It's in Jerusalem. It's at the corner of Ben Yehuda and King George. Great location. Great. And I loved it. I loved the... Uh, I love the atmosphere. I love the people. I love the the vibe. And I had gone to some open mics in Boston and and stuff like that. I was a teenager, but I think I got serious about it after college. 2013 was when I really sort sort of made the decision that this was going to be my life. Because in college, I was very much a college student. I tried a lot of stuff, and I did some cool summer jobs, um, but none of them were in comedy. They were all other things. And then in 2013, I finally was like, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. And uh, it was great. It was a great job. I really loved it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it felt like it was always the plan, getting on stage and and doing it and hoping to get paid more and more for it. And yeah, now I have this really lovely thing and I do lots of Jewish shows, which I really enjoy. Um, and oh, lots of, you know, non Jewy shows that I really enjoy. And and I get these great adventures. Like last night I was at Mass Mocha, which is a contemporary art museum in Western Massachusetts. Gorgeous. The largest contemporary art museum in the world. And, you know, the show was at eight and the uh, museum closes at six. And from six to seven, 15, my girlfriend and a friend of mine, David, and and his uh, and his friend, we walked around these closed galleries, and it was mm. just us and the largest contemporary art museum in the world, and these James Terrell exhibits, and it was just a really beautiful, sublime, small you know experience, but it was a part of my day. And I have so many small things like that, sublime experiences that are parts of my day. Now, I did have to drive two and a half hours to the show and then drive two and a half hours back after the show. So I was, you know, so I'm a little run down today. But it's a really fun little existence with Mm -hmm. lots of nooks and crannies. And that sort of suits me down to a T. So, um. So yeah, that's what I love about it is that there's a lot of varieties of experience. Every day looks different, even the tough ones. So that's why I think I love it, and that's why I think I'll keep doing it. You know, it, it's as as you talk about this, I, I right, I often think about like most of our audience, which is people in recovery and um, Jews in recovery, um, and I think how this really is a great description of the kind of day that sort of we. Uh, want people to have, which is even though there are challenges throughout the day, like driving there, driving back, all of that, right? Part of what makes it meaningful is finding moments of gratitude, right? Moments of, as you say, sort of like kind of inspiration, moments of of so, these sort of, yeah. you know, little nooks and crannies. I love that. Little nooks and crannies of, well, how can you make those moments meaningful so that you can feel good about the entire experience and not just focus on right, some of the hardship, which I think a lot of people sort of are, I mean, there's the addictions and then there's the addictions I call, right? The low misery addictions, right? The people who are just decided that they're going to focus on the negative, right? They're going to focus on like, ah, you know, and I had to drive back for two and a half hours, you know, late. Yeah. Well, Oh no, there's a push pull for me between the tough parts and the good parts. And I think the two inform each other. Mm-hmm. And I also think that I'm lucky because there's always a capacity for me to turn my tough parts into good parts. Right. You know, I've worked shitty jobs um, and gone, well. What's the worst job you've had? Worst job I've had. What's the shittiest job you've had? <laughs> Um, God damn. 
I, do, I can tell you mine. <laughs> yeah, please tell me yours. I, so for a brief moment, my father, right, who whatever was a very, a very interesting man. But for a brief moment, my father decided that he wants to invest and he wants to own a chain of bakeries in Israel. So he bought a whole bunch of bakeries. He hired a whole bunch of staff and his bakeries starting making, you know, the regular sort of like bakery fair in Israel. So Burekas and in Rogelach and like all the different. Was it good stuff? It was good stuff. It was good stuff, you know. Um, very good, in fact, right? Because sort of like, right, our Belgian stock would not allow for it to be not good. But, right, at some point, I had to, or indeed I had to, but like, right, I was asked to help, right? Either sell or do or make. I hated every moment of it. It was the worst job I've ever had. There was nothing about this that I liked. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so so funny. I um worst job I've ever had. I was did a summer job working for a baseball team in Milwaukee. And that was oh that wasn't amazing. There was one guy who I worked with who was kind of a piece of shit. Um what was his name? Nah, I won't say it on here, but he was he was he wasn't great. But I had a little side gig, which was um I got myself a little side gig sort of working the door at a bar and it literally was one day I showed up. I was like, can I make some extra money by working here? And they were like, yeah. And they paid me cash in hand, which Hmm. seems crazy. It was this bar in this part of town called water street. And I would just sit at the door and live in fear of my coworkers coming into this bar. Cause there aren't that many bar, you know, Milwaukee has a lot of bars, but this is a popular area. So I would keep my head down like this <laughs> and try to look scary. Also just like sort of crinkle up my face. And I did that for maybe two weeks and I dealt with the drunkest people I've ever seen in real life. People were loud. People were uh, like, they were so viscerally unlikable that I think by the end uh, I had a real dislike for humanity. Like I'm not mm. like a real angry substantive right. dislike for humanity and also a dislike for bars in general, which me, which, which I've, you know, I've maintained that uh, I've maintained some of those, some of those aspects, but that, that truth has taken root in your life. There, so yeah, that truth that truth has taken root, and but also there was a that comedy club in Milwaukee was owned by the mob, and it was and I was already interested in comedy. I was going to the shows, but they were terrible shows with terrible comedians, and the local hosts were racist and bad, and, and sexist and, and bad. And I, I really, you know, right. I didn't have the best time in Milwaukee. So, so I can't tell if it was the worst job I ever had or I just didn't enjoy. Milwaukee, although every time I've been back to Milwaukee, I've had the best time. Ah. So, you know. You know, so yeah, it's all a balance. Maybe you return on vacation. Right. But (laughs) but yeah, I do. um, I had that. I worked at a chicken restaurant in New York City. It wasn't actually, it wasn't, I described it as a terrible job on stage, but it wasn't that shitty a job. It was okay. It was fine. People were nice. And, uh, New Yorkers get a bad rap. New Yorkers are, as a by and large, very nice. I don't love the self mythologizing of the gruffness. You know what I mean? Where yes, like, yes. No, I'm with you. I'm oh, with you on man. that. You know, I saw a priest punch a baby uh, <laughs> in 9/11, and I knew the city was going to be just fine. And you're like, you know, it's what is it about seeing two people be mean to each other that makes you convinced that it's a spirit of like my experience of New York is a very generous giving communal place for the Mm. most part. Right. Like people feel really interlaced in New York city. I see a million examples of it all the time, but ever, but the mythology that New Yorkers like to tell themselves is that they're these horrific monsters who like will steal the shoes out of a stroller or something. 
Right, right. So like, you can die in the street. Nobody's going to think. I saw a guy well, rob a convenience store with the snake as a, as a weapon. He opened his coat, right. pulled out a boa constrictor. And I was like, only in New York. You know, like, it's, right. it's although I will say it was, uh, it was somewhere, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, whatever, but I was still going, I was still, I still left the apartment at the time. And I left and I went with, I got some groceries. And on the way back, I was in my backpack. And on the way back, I fell like spectacularly, like, you know, fell like eat shit, kind of like on the ground, sprawl, spread eagle fell. Uh, really hurt my knee and, and, and couldn't get up. And it was just sort of like lying there on, uh, <laughs> on the sidewalk on, you know, Broadway in Tribeca. And and it's true that sort of that nobody really did stop, but people were just walking by and things, and I'm like, hmm, okay, really, nobody, <laughs> yeah, stopped. nobody, nobody stopped. There was even a police person like right there, and they're like, they didn't come. I just said, no, I want to believe it's because like I always seem like I'm capable and everything's fine, and like my face probably said like, oh, it's fine, but it's but probably not. But like I was just like there, and like it took a couple minutes, and I just like sat there not even sat there just like lay there for a second just making sure that i didn't break anything um before i got up i do think our relationship to other people has changed over the last decade yes i think we see other people that we are friendly with or that are just you know people in our cities or circles as a threat now in a way that we never have before how so um i think we become like a little bit of a bucket of crabs where you know where there is an assumed, um, I don't know. I do think New York City is ironically kinder than most, but I think, like, the idea to me of a hitchhiker getting picked up feels very quaint and foreign mm-hmm. in a way that, you know that I don't think it was when I was growing up. You know, I think the idea of like, like picking somebody up off the street to give them a ride really has, um, be, because there are, are alternatives now. If you don't have a car, there's an, there's Uber, well, right, there's right, Lyft. Right. And so the idea of inviting someone into your life in a temporary way is seen as a threat now. Um, and I think something like that is a good example of how. Does that make sense at all? Like, no, it it, it does. It, it, I, look, I do think that sort of, and I blame Hollywood. <laughs> I, I, and I do, I do, I blame TV and Hollywood, right? It's so like horror, terror, and all the other stuff that sort of is there, um, to instill the fear in us, right? I think is, um, is there. But but I also. Right, you know, on the comedy bit, right? It's true. On the other hand, right, it's true. This sort of like, sort of like, the advice of every sage person, right? When I was growing up, is like, especially. I mean, I don't know if you grew up, but like later on, was like, do not share your address on the internet to strangers. Do not get into a stranger's car, right? Do not share any details. Now, I mean, that's pretty much the Uber model, right? Like, like go on the internet, give them your address, go into somebody else's stranger's car. That's funny, but I do think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the, 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 we're bombarded with examples of people who have harmed other people. That's right. And not just, you know, Hollywood is, I'm sure, culpable, but there are so many, you know, the news every day, right. the tw- Twitter is people hurting other people. And, you know, and if someone, and there's a lot of pressure on the good stories, right? Like, right. you know, they'll be like, this restores your faith in humanity. And I'm like, well, it doesn't need to do that. I'm okay. Right. 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 Like, like, also, I, just because he helped another person falling on the street, like, Watch this That man. should be the standard, right? Like, watch this man go out of his way to help this, you know, guy up. Watch like, this. No, that seems, should be really normal. Watch this man pull this dog out of a burning building. It'll restore <laughs> your faith in him. And the guy just, like, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah, you should. You know, you should do that. Watch this guy tip it, tip it at a coffee shop. It will restore your faith in him. I'm like... These these little nice things should just be little nice things. We should be allowed right. to have little nice things without them being load bearing walls. But that but that's part of I think the issue that it clearly is that we need those right. They're oh, targeting yeah. us right. They, we we need those moments because perhaps life is harsher, 
right? And, and in that sense, perhaps that's the role of comedy. And I think always has, right? Part, if we talk about Jews and comedy back, right? I remember sort of like doing some work around sort of like the Holocaust. There were comedy shows at like the Warsaw Ghetto or whatever, I believe, right? I think. Oh, wow. Right? I didn't know that, that but I believe that. That sort of humor was the way that we dealt with atrocities. Tough gig. Very tough gig. You know, tough gig to be the comic playing the Warsaw Ghetto. First of all, I bet you the acoustics aren't great because you're quiet. You're just like, you know. <laughs> also, that audience is not. You have to, it. right? I think it's one of an old joke that I heard. It's like, right? You have to give the jokes that you have, you have to give them a number and then you don't tell the joke. You just say 57. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People like laughing, you know, 57, 81. And then someone else goes 26 and you're like, exactly. you're like oh. the delivery. You're messing yeah, it up. Exactly. Messing it up. exactly. Uh, I mean, I've never heard that, but I'd believe it because there's comedy everywhere. People, people love, there's comedy all over the world. It's so great to go to other places and see comedy or do comedy. I've always loved it. And you know, is comedy universal? Oh yeah, especially people go. How does it go down talking about being a Jew in Sri Lanka, whatever? Well, the specific is universal, right? The more specific you are, the more universal it is. My friend Adam Siegel. Oh, I love that. Great producer, and he always cites my Big Fat Greek Wedding because people saw my Big Fat Greek Wedding and Jews thought it was about Jews, and black people thought it was about black people, and. You know, like it's, the, I mean, ultimately it's one person's story about her crazy family, but, but it really is. People hear me talk about being Jewish in a specific way. And they're like, yeah, I believe that, you know, it, if you're Jewish, it's more resonant, I have to assume. But, you know, people go, I have the same dynamics. I have the same doubts and fears and faiths. And, yeah. you know, Dostoevsky, right? It was like, right. All happy families are exactly alike. All happy families are exactly alike. Yeah, I think Dostoevsky said, "All happy families are exactly alike. All unhappy families are all different." <laughs> That's so funny. But I like that the sort of the, the the more specific you are, the more universal it is. Because again, I think that when we're talking about connection, when we're talking about people, right? And for us, it's like what well, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? It's not sobriety. It's not um, recovery. It, it is connection. Um, the more then we talk about ourselves, the more open, vulnerable, funny we are, right? The more we share our stories, the more people can relate. I mean, do you find that when people speak about their addiction, there are things that they relate to in other experiences outside of addiction? You know, is there a... Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Well, a lot of addictions in that sense start as a solution to a problem, mm. right? It's the drink before the party to loosen things, loosen things up because you you have social anxiety, or it's the the right the the pain pills, or you know, or the other opiates, you know, whatever, even sort of heroin, right? So that takes away the PTSD or takes away the pain, right? It's the Right. It's it's the the sex that makes you feel that you are worthy or that you are good. Right. Somebody says you're hot, you're sexy. And what you hear is you're important. Right. I love you. Right. Um, it's, yeah. it's it's the gambling and the 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 um, kind of randomness of life and, and the chaos around us. Right. O- almost all addictions reflect an inner uh an inner turmoil, an inner maladjustment, right? What we call, I call a hole in the soul. Right? I believe the addiction is a spiritual malady through and through. I mean, it has medical components, 100%, but but it is primarily, I think, a spiritual malady. And in that sense, it, it does have tentacles to all aspects of our lives, which sure. is why recovery is so important to really address all aspects of life. It's not just stop drinking. That will not solve the problem. What solves the problem? I'm sure that's a complex answer, obviously. It is, and it is, and it isn't, right? What solves the problem is to fill the hole in us, the hole in our soul, to fill that element with spiritual matter, with content, with connection, with people, with community, with things that give you <laughs> gratitude, with the ability to 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 address that gratitude, to the ability to 
sit with your feelings, right? Because most people don't want to sit with their feelings. Man, I mean, I do have this feeling, though, that um, I've, I've spent some time with addicts of various stripes. Comedy is filled with of course, addicts of various stripes or former addicts. And, or, I mean, you're never... Right. And I do feel like, I don't want to say everyone's an addict, but... but, but that is true. But I, No, you can't. We said you don't have to be an addict to be in recovery. Or one of my old mentors, uh, Harriet Rosetto, says, you're either in recovery or you're in denial. <laughs> I mean, I, I sometimes I go, I am, when you know, when the pandemic started, I was in a deep funk Mm -hmm. because i had every night gotten used to this adrenaline rush this high in this come down of doing you know getting on stage in front of people and even if it wasn't a great show there were moments always of you know you know ecstasy right and and then it disappeared for Mm -hmm. months and I went from doing, you know, hundreds of shows a year to doing maybe five shows in the in the year of 2020. And I was really um, upset. It was really upsetting. And I still right. do a bunch of, you know, Zoom shows and stuff. Right. But it was a, you know, not the same fix. It right. wasn't the same thing. And uh, my therapist says, you had a, you have a process addiction. I don't know exactly. Yeah, that's right what that is but but he's it's one that's not a substance right it's like yes i well that's why that's why i want to differentiate and not right. claim that you know like i don't want to be like oh well i'm addicted to stand-up comedy it's not the same thing but like in the same way that people get a serotonin hit from their phone right i uh and there are plenty of people in my life by the way who are and, and that by the way is an addiction and we define it as such it may not be heroin. It may not kill you in the same physical way, but it can, in fact, sort of be very kill your costly. Toll. Yeah, and very costly. And perhaps even, even because if you, right, even I think you and I know people, right, who, who when they couldn't perform comedy or at the level they is, they, they unfortunately sort of also did drastic things to their own lives. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the pandemic was a really, obviously really difficult time for comedians for, you know, people would say, oh, you're a comic. And for the first time since 2013 or 12, I was like, I don't really know if that's true. Right. You know, I don't know that I'm doing. Also I'm a comic com- if I don't do comedy. Yeah. Am I a comedian? If I, I mean, like, right. what am I, a captain with no boat? I'm like, there's no. There's no activity here. There's nothing substantive. So I even now I get a little bummed thinking about it, but I mean, things are kind of back, but I have a lot of nerves in a way that I didn't before because every performance can, you know, seem like a load bearing wall. Every performance, it's hard to remember how to try new material or find safe spaces to do that because, you know, a lot of those things are feel gone to me, but uh, and a lot of my instincts as a comedian are, are no, honed weirdly. Yeah. Because so what did you? So what did you do? What did you say to yourself when you felt like right? So like it was I don't know month four, and we didn't know the the end in sight. And I and started trying to make my days filled with you know those nooks and crannies. I would right. walk out on the street, or I'd read a lot, or I'd you know, go on these long, long, long hikes or I'd go to Zion in um, in Utah or, you know, I'd drag my girlfriend to a weird restaurant or something or, <laughs> you know, since sit outside on the sidewalk, you know, it was a very off color. And also I was getting into a relationship. And so that was a real saving grace because that had its own nooks and crannies to in- investigate and be interesting uh, and be interested in, but without that, I'm sure, you know, I'm a, I'm a go in search of guy, like, but I love that. And I think that's a great lesson for people, 
right? The oh my God. Because you could, you could have chosen to wallow, right? You could have chosen to just say like, this is horrible. I hate this. I hate my life. But like, I love this, right? Because I, we talk about this all the time with people who like, what is it that will find those those nooks and crannies, those things of gratitude, right? Is it a walk by the beach? Is it a hike? Is it a read? Is it is it a new, something new? So for you, not since it was a new relationship, but like, right? Do you want to take up a new language or I don't know. Someone told me that an astounding number of addicts become marathon runners. And yeah, I, I believe that. And I'm like, I don't know why, but that uh, that always struck me as something that's interesting. And I do feel like left to my own devices, I will go find something. Hmm. You know, stand-up comedy is so much fun because to some extent, it's about you doing the best you have with your own devices. Right. It's not dependent on, you know, by the way, there are, it is, you know, sometimes shows are dependent on acoustics and audiences and sound set up and stage set up. And sometimes there's some comedians are like, there's no such thing as a bad audience. And I'm like, sometimes it is the audience's fault, you know? <laughs> yes. But um, I had a really good conversation about that with Pete Holmes, who's one of my favorite comics. We were talking about Sometimes you do get a bad audience, but for the most part, stand-up comedy is about what you can do on your own, left to your That's own right. devices. That's right. And so, you know, a side effect of it is that it's made me better at being on my own. And mm -hmm. if I'm on my own in a, another city, I will, you know, I'm always going, going, going to the restaurant I've read about right. or the weird thing I've seen on the internet or the off-color podcast, you know, podcast location that <laughs> right. that someone has, has pointed out or or something I read about a million years ago in a novel or a travel book. Like, I have made myself good at at at, shut, at shuffling around and, and traveling. And that, and that uh, if I wasn't in this relationship, I'm sure I would be like, have been in a car seeing stuff, hmm. you know, meeting people in safe ways and small doses. Like I get a lot of energy from that and it replaces a lot of my, uh, you know, anxiety traveling in a meaningful way or moving from place to place in a meaningful way. And that doesn't even necessarily mean, you know, going abroad or going to Zion. It just means even in LA, I sort of travel when I can in a meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. You can write sort of, I lived in LA for close to a decade and, there's a million places I've never been yet, right? It's so, great. It's a good city for that. So is New York, right. obviously. Right. So Absolutely. is New York. So it's, again, I think it's very, it's very important because in that sense, many times we say like, right, you can't run away from your problems because wherever you go, there you are. But but the, the opposite is also true. That is sort of like if you're willing to explore and you're willing to be on your own and doing things, there are amazing things you can do. You don't need an audience. You don't need a lot of other people to to explore have fun have those moments i will say it's helped to have a person to share it with in a way that of course know, like yesterday we were driving from boston to mass mocha in north adams massachusetts and we're going through lexington and concord and right, irving right. massachusetts and a place called florida massachusetts and yeah. like these <laughs> i know all these very very well right really i I went to summer camp in, in Western Mass. So. I mean, these are gorgeous places yeah. for the most part. Yeah. The setting is extremely idyllic. And right. and some places are very odd. And then we drove back at night in pitch black and, you know, on Route 2. And all of these places are, are you know, and it's really dark except for the town of Irving, Massachusetts, which is lit up with these gas street lamps that line the main main street. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm just like... Also, it seems like the place is completely deserted except for, and you know, those are s sublime and small and you're not going to stop, but, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful moment. Yeah. And if you have, t I try, I really try to live a life where I can get a couple of those a day, which is a lot, but right. I, you know, yesterday I had three or four beautiful moments and that's, uh, and one of them was on stage, obviously, which is my favorite right. kind. But it's really nice. It's really fun, right. and uh, I really cherish. I really cherish those things. So, you know, and a lot of them come from other people. 
So yeah. having friends and engaging with friends is a big, uh, and engaging with peers. Like I love stand-up comedians so much. Like, um, you know, there's a random, uh, there are these two guys, James A. Castor and Ed Gamble. And A. Castor and I have had the same uh, manager in the past. And I don't think he's crazy about the manager. And I don't even know that actually, I don't even think A. Castor is crazy about me, if I'm being honest. But um, if I'm being totally honest with myself, I think when I, when he first met me, I was probably like very young and really annoying and he was really patient. Um, but the, these guys have a podcast called off menu and I love listening to the podcast because I just like those guys and I just like comedians and I like hearing their voices every so often. And so, and, and they have other comedians on and it kind of, helps like when i wasn't doing comedy listening mm-hmm. to the podcast and hearing other comedians talk ed gamble and i are cool by the way like he's a he's a good he's a good buddy and and i love i really love james a Castor. i'm not saying that like you know no, no. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> <Get it. laughs> I'm just saying i have a specific love of comedians and i think some comedians when they meet me are just like why is this motherfucker so enthusiastic but like comics give me like a special feeling mm. And uh, and people who love comedy, especially young people who love comedy, make me thrilled. Um, so, what is the role of comedy, right? Because we talked about, I mean, you know, there's, I guess, part of the question, especially in this sort of uh, woke era, right? Um, of, right. Sort of what 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 you know. I, I've always believed, and but I'm I'm willing to be corrected. That right, sort of the role of comedy for me has always been to push the buttons. I think the role to make me think about something pers- else. I think the role of comedy is to have a perspective, and there are a million ways to have a perspective. Everyone's perspective is different, and so in some cases, yes, that's pushing the buttons. But you know, I'm not crazy about this sort of um, movement and comedy that is either consciously alt alt right or consciously controversial unless it feels really earned to me and so you know some people some people have really great there are people who i disagree with who do great comedy people who are way further to the right than i am or further to the left than i am there are a ton of people further to the left than i am but there are some <laughs> And I just think the role of, you know, what's the role of comedy? I don't know that the role of comedy is to push the buttons, but I do think good comedy has a specific perspective and voice. And so, you know, some, and so every great comic that I've loved, one of my favorite comedians is this guy, Brian Regan. And he doesn't have any political opinions, not a single one, but his perspective is very unique. Hmm. Sebastian Maniscalco has got a great, Maria Bamford has a special perspective. Chappelle, Mm-hmm. As a perspective, even though sometimes I don't agree with it or even enjoy it, but his, per- you know, comedy right. is about having a perspective. Hannah Gadsby has a really unique perspective. Like, right. it's really important comedically to to have that. And so, some of my favorite, com- all my favorite comics have that in common. And some people do it in their content, and some people do it in their aesthetic. Right, right. The, what you say versus how you say it, but. Right. Comedy is the blending of aesthetic and content. That's is it crafting. is it designed to make you laugh? Like for example, Hannah Gatsby, right? So I I didn't laugh at all. Like I recognized the importance of her quote unquote comedy, but like I wasn't. There was no moment for me that was like, oh my god, that's f- that I'm actually laughing and funny, which yeah. is what I what I thought comedy is, but maybe it isn't. Comedy, Always. if you, I'm a big believer. If someone stands on stage for an hour and doesn't do anything and they call it comedy, then it's comedy. That's mm-hmm. how I totally, you know, no one gets to gatekeep what is and isn't comedy. I'm super, but, um, Hannah specifically is, is, is inter- interesting because I've seen so many Hannah Gadsby shows. I've seen four of them, right. um, in Melbourne. Right. They've done Melbourne Comedy Festival a couple of times and Hannah does a show and, and she's brilliant and I've seen her do. Hannah was a famous comedian in Australia before Nanette. Nanette 
is merely you know the culmination of her growth. no no absolutely but that's my point so right so i didn't i've never heard of it yeah, and then I mean, of course on the net and then right it starts and there's a little like thing but then of course the end of the net for people who didn't see it you need to see it right it it's not funny well yeah but it's got a perspective right but that's like, my that's, i guess that's my question right because like, it's you're like i felt bombarded in 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 a, in a very important way but like when when it ends right and i clicked off i i didn't have the the this sort of sensation i had when i you know see whatever chris rock when i'm like just like belly laugh achy you know i had this conversation with brett gelman who's one of my favorite comedy people comedy voices i confessed to brett gelman that i didn't i, I saw a movie and i i didn't I didn't enjoy it. And I recognized that it was a good movie, but it was an indie movie. And it was, it was um, different than what I was used to. It was like, it was unsettling. It didn't have a, Mm. it didn't have a specific ending. It didn't give me the narrative closure that I was used to with movies growing up. And I, you know, but I've talked about this movie more than um, more than any other movie this year, and I've seen it twice. So what movie is it? Zola. Okay. But the movie is brilliant. Like, it's clearly a brilliant film. Like, it's well-directed. It is compelling. You are riveted all the way through. Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, I didn't find it enjoyable. But it's also not supposed to be enjoyable. Hmm. Like, it's not supposed to be, like, a puff cotton candy piece. Right. And it's, I think it's probably a work of genius. I think it's probably, it is a work of genius. It's really, really good. But it was so disconcerting. And it was so viscerally, you know, it was so viscerally uncomfortable. And I felt like a pit in my stomach for the movie. But that's you know, that's a strong feeling. So, you know, to say that comedy is, should merely evoke laughter is, uh, you know, might be a tiny bit, like, I'm just offering this up as an argument, mm-hmm. only because yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about <laughs> film in this new context. Right. To think about comedy is offering you something else that makes you feel a certain way. And also maybe, you know, I, I think the only thing required for good comedy is a perspective. And yeah, so, no, I, 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 it's interesting. And I, and I, I don't know that I disagree with you. I just, you know, Oh yeah, no, it's a good question though. It's a really good question, yeah. especially about Nanette, which is so evocative. Right. But like I grew up, yeah, I grew up with sort of like, I guess, and just because it is sort of a childhood thing, right. My favorite comedian for the longest time was this French guy called Louis de Finesse. Right. And he made these movies back in sort of, 50s, 60s, 70s in France, um, right? Growing up in Belgium, we would see them. And one of them is the adventures of, of, of Rabbi Jacob, right? Les Aventures de Rabbi Jacob. Some would say, if I say that, that it is a highly anti-Semitic, highly offensive, right? Sort of like the equivalent of, right, of, of, of some racist, uh, uh, I would say, commentary today. But most of his movies, which is not just that one, there's a whole bunch of them, uh, and they're not about the characters, but like, is that it also was social, um, social commentary. Sure. But they also were hilariously funny to me. So it just happens that way. But yes, but I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think it's an interesting thing. And and I guess in that sense, part of my, part of that question for me is, you know, Yom Kippur is coming up, right? So like, um, you know, the Day of Atonement for Jews. Um Is there other things that you've said on stage or in general that sort of that you think or you feel you need to atone for on Yom Kippur? <laughs> you know, I've by the way, I've been super open in the past about having said stuff on stage that I wouldn't say now. And by the way, stuff like impu- like stuff in twenty twelve, right? Of stuff course, in twenty eighteen, stuff. Uh, is there anything? Maybe some stuff in twenty nineteen. Um, I used to do jokes about, 
I wouldn't say jokes about fat people, but I had a joke that would make fun, you know, make fun right. of a, right. I read a book by this guy, Tommy Tomlinson called the elephant in the room. Tommy's a <laughs> writer, a funny title writer in Charlotte. <laughs> He's extremely overweight. Um, and he writes gorgeously and the book is brilliant. And by the end of the book, I thought I'll never make fun of any person's weight in any way, no matter how oblique ever again. And there's a line I would do that would absolutely crush. Right. And I still haven't, uh, and I'd never done it again. And it wasn't, uh, and it's, it's a really good line or the line was, would get a huge reaction and no one was ever upset by it. Are you better for it for not saying the line? Maybe I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not claiming like I know I'm a better person because I read the book. I'm just no, no. Like, I'm not even person. Just you know, are you a better comedian for it? Are you, yeah, are you better for it? Probably. I'm just saying I change. You know, like I've mm. changed. I have done. You know, someone came up to me once and they went, "You know, this joke you used to do is offensive," and I was like, "Yeah, for me too." And <laughs> Yeah, I don't like this joke anymore. Or I did this joke and or the joke is about an offensive topic and people laugh at the offensive thing instead of the mm-hmm. No, I I've done uh and by the way, I like I change constantly. Like right. I don't know that I should, you know, have stuff if I've said stuff, by the way, that's hurt people, like I'm sure that I'm accountable to that, but also like you know, that I, you know, that I have this, uh, life where I'm, you know, statically okay with everything that I've ever, I've ever said, you know, like, I hope that in, you know, five years stuff I'm saying now is an anathema. Right. But by the way, just because somebody's offended doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. No, I mean, and I agree with that. I, I agree. But, um, you know, I've, I've done jokes in the past that I, that I'm not crazy about now. And like, hopefully, and like, even some of the jokes I'm doing now are so old and I'm not, cause the, the pandemic, everything I'm doing right. is either crazy right. new or crazy old. And I'm not psyched about some of those jokes. And I've tried to cut them out of my act as, as bad habits or, but like, yeah, standards continue to refine and expand. And by the way, I stopped telling a joke and now I'm uh, in 2016 because I didn't think it was okay. And now I'm like, eh, it's okay. Like, it, this is a living, moving thing. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm sure there's stuff to atone for, but I won't know. For So, so, it's, so it's not just restrictive, right? Because sometimes I feel like we just restrict more and more and more, we can say. But it sounds like you, so some things just come back up. Oh, yeah. Like, also, oh, yeah. some things are important to talk about. Right. And also, there's always what there's the subject of the joke. And then there's who the joke's at the expense of, right? Like, you can, you know. Right talk about a subject and because the two things are so close, sometimes people get really confused. Right. Like, you know, uh, I did a joke about, um, the subject of the joke was, uh, once when younger and ill-advised, I went on stage in a wheelchair, uh, as part of a thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm not crazy about the joke anymore because people tend to laugh at the wrong thing. So I've stopped doing it. But the joke is about, people's um you know the self-righteous pretension of a of a specific audience member hmm. and that's right long-standing tradition right but midler right in the wheelchair with the, with oh, the mermaid yeah. yeah absolutely but i mean like this was just some bit i did and right. and i uh and I, I again i don't do the joke anymore and i should record it somewhere or put it down somewhere so that it exists because there was a time that i was you know proud of it but audiences weren't giving me what i wanted the the jokes would do so well i would close with these jokes and if you're if you're not familiar with comedy usually comedians close open and close with their best things right and um and so i would close with this joke but i noticed people laughing at bits that i wasn't super psyched about and Mm. i would take them out and people would laugh at other bits that I wasn't seeing. And soon the joke was dwindling. So, uh, so yeah, like the funny thing is you don't just do jokes in a vacuum. You do, you, you do jokes in front of society. So society dictates right. what is, uh, but yeah, like it, it's a really complicated thing. And, you know, 
I take things pretty lightly whenever any whenever I see anyone condemned for you know condemned for a joke. I'm always like, eh, let me let me take right. a closer look at that. Sometimes it's really deserved, but for the most part, you know, like everyone has jokes that they don't that they aren't proud of, and and uh, people like uh, Patton Oswalt and Kyle Kinane and right, right. Romagnani have spoken really eloquently about the jokes that they used to do that they wouldn't do anymore. But like. Yeah, there's stuff I've said that I definitely should be atoning for, I'm sure. On Yom Kippur? On Yom what, Kippur. What will you be doing on Yom Kippur? Where will I be? I'll be in L.A. I'll go to Shul in L.A. That'll be my thing. Um, Actually, speaking of which, I have to go pack for uh for my trip. Thank you for your time. Alex, this has been uh, <laughs> incredibly uh, interesting. Let's do it again. Let's yeah, do it again. Absolutely. If you'll have absolutely. me back, I'd love that. I will absolutely have you back. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to Tattoos and Torah. I'm Rabbi Iggy here with Alex Newman. Uh, Shana Tova, everyone. Uh, Khatima Tova, Gmar Khatima Tova to you as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you.